You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Loved ones, if you have a Bible, a copy of God's Word, would you join me in Romans chapter 11? While you're turning there, just a clerical note, just a reminder that next weekend in the pulpit we'll have a guest preacher, uh, Pastor Robbie Gallaty. He's coming to us from Tennessee. Uh, Robbie and his wife Candy are joining us, and we opened up an opportunity for all of you folk as well to join them. Uh, they're hosting uh, several events while they're here, and one of them is Pastor Robbie will be, another Robbie, different Robbie, Robbie with a Y, this one is, uh, Pastor Robbie with a Y will be hosting at uh, the men's uh, breakfast uh, up at the Burlington Convention Center. We've, we've got uh, tickets left on that, but there's already, I think, about 500 of you guys coming, which is fantastic. So if you've got room, you want to come, come on out and join us. And then for the women, we'd love to have you join us as well. The Women's Connection Night is going to be here in this room on Friday, this coming Friday with Candy Gallaty, both of them sharing their story and their lives of how God has dramatically transformed them. And I would just will say by a word of warning, do not be alarmed at the size of Pastor Robbie Gallaty, okay? He's six foot six and like 250 pounds of muscle. So just get ready for that. It's a very stark contrast to the frame that stands in front of you now, okay? All right. But be excited for that. We, we trust that God will be moving that weekend. We're excited for them to come and to join us and pray it's an encouragement for you. Hey, uh, we're in the ending of a series uh, this morning, a series really that began 500 years ago from October 31st, just a few days ago. Uh, That's when a German monk hammered onto the door of a church, uh, which is where you would post the bulletin board news of the day. He posted on that that door uh, a list of of what he felt were, were excesses of the medieval Catholic church. And, and, and wanting to promote a scholarly dialogue of this, he, he wrote it in scholarly Latin, even though he himself spoke uh, German. Uh, he, he decided to write it in, in Latin. Uh, but, a, but a thing happened that was remarkable, the, 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 the connecting of history. Uh, just a few years before, there was this man by the name of Gutenberg, Johannes Gutenberg, and he decided to invent something that would stop people from having to handwrite all of their notes. He invented the printing press, and now you just set the type in place, push the press down, and now you have a printed page. And you can do that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. It's like the invention of social media at that point. Well, what happened is Luther writes this in Latin, somebody grabs it, translates it into German, and then it goes like wildfire. Like a tweet you can't get back, this thing goes viral. Fast forward, you get three Uh, Trials later, one by the Roman emperor, Uh, some artillery fire of writing for and against, throwing a little burning of books, throwing a peasant's riot, and then Martin Luther gets himself kicked out of the church by the Pope, only to take his excommunication letter, hold it over a fire, a bonfire in Wittenberg, his hometown, and execute the original mic drop of dropping that into the fire. But have you ever asked why? Why did he do this? Why did these guys stick their neck out so much? Their lives were at stake. Their families' lives were at stake. Their well-being was at stake. For some of them, the the, the understanding was their salvation was at stake. Why Why would you risk so much? Well, it's not an understatement to say that for Luther and for every other reformer, They believed that everything truly was at stake. The answers to the most important questions in all of life was at stake. Answers to questions like, who is God? Who is God and what's he really like? 
Answers to questions like, who am I? And why am I here? What's my purpose in this life? Well, from this Reformation, five singular truths, five critical truths came out that our church chose to just seize the moment and underscore and say, yes, we believe these truths as well. Five amazing truths of Christian orthodoxy even today. Here they are. We've been walking through them. Started here at Sola Scriptura. These are all Latin words. Don't get taken by them. Sola Scriptura means Scripture alone. Scripture is this singular authority. You don't need someone else to speak to you what God thinks. You just need to read what Scripture says. You don't need a pope. You don't need a council. You need Scripture to speak to you to tell you who God is and what He's like. Then we went to Solo Cristo. Solo Cristo, Christ alone the singular mediator of Jesus Christ. You don't need a priest to mediate before you and God. You don't need the Virgin Mary to, to mediate between you and God. You don't need any other saints to mediate. You don't need a Pope in Rome. You need Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And then sola gratia, the understanding that is by grace alone, the singular gift of God in grace. Salvation is executed, initiated, and brought to completion by the grace of God. And then sola fide, last week, it's seized, taken hold of by our hands by clinging in faith, not saying, oh, look at how good I've been. Here's my works to accomplish this. No, no, it's only by faith do I receive these truths. And now we come to our final sola, this this morning, which is the glory of God, soli deo gloria. The singular purpose of everything is for the glory of God. Now, I put this in the center because in many ways, these four act as the linebackers protecting the ball. If this is protected by all of these, then everything's good. But when one of these starts to fall, when, when all of a sudden it's not the, not the singular authority of Scripture, it's also this as well, then this begins to shake as well. And, and, and then if, if it's not solely by grace alone, and maybe it's some of my works alone, then, then this solely day of glory begins to get shaky as well. We'll explain more on this in just a minute, but the soli deo gloria is key for understanding what we're going to talk about today. We'll get into this. Uh, the singular glory of God in everything. It answers the question this morning, how great is our God? How gloriously great is God actually? It answers the question for us this morning, who is it that we really worship? Why is this so important? Why is it so important that we understand the greatness of God? Why is it so important that we begin to peel back the layers of our sight to see more and more and more of the glory of God? Well, James Boyce, he puts it well. He says this, no people ever rise higher than their idea of God. Conversely, on the other side of the coin, a loss of the sense of God's high and awesome character always involves a loss of a people's moral values and even what we commonly call humanity. You lose sight of God and who he is, you lose sight of who you are and what you were put on this earth for. You lose sight of the value and the place of God, his omnipotence, his glory. You lose sight of the value and the place of humanity. It hinges on this. The higher you view God, the greater you will view humanity. The lesser you view God, the less you will care about humanity. How great is God? Who is it that we worship? Let's go into the text this morning. 
Romans chapter 11. Again, we're talking all about the glory of God this morning. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given to him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And that is a great spot for an amen. The single aim of today's passage is worship. That your hearts be worshiping this amazing, glorious God. You understand this, the single aim of today's passage is not that you become a better person. It's not that you learn how to, how to care for your wife and your, and your family better. It's not that you learn how to become more successful in life and, and become more amazing than you already think you are. That's not the point of today's message. The point of today's message is to get a high and glorious view of God. And when we get that high and glorious view of God, then we will begin to function as God wants us to be. Then we will become that kind of husband we want to be, that kind of wife we want to be, that kind of mother, that kind of father we want to be. When we view God as high and holy, everything changes in our lives. To recognize the glory of God today and then to respond it with our lives. To hear it, to believe it, and then to do something about it. That's the goal of today. To worship the Lord in his splendor of his holiness. But when we say the word glory, it's a good time for a pause. Because what do we mean when we say glory? It sounds like this Christianese word that pops up and we don't know what it means. And we just say, oh, to God be the glory, 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 glory. What does it mean? Oh, glory. I went to seminary with a guy who just shouted it out occasionally whenever a professor was talking. Glory. What does it mean? We just throw it out. Well, I came up with this, I found this great definition on the glory, and it's right there. The glory of God, the singular splendor of God and its consequences for mankind. I love that. The singular splendor of God. Incomparable. Can't compare him to anyone else. And how it relates to us. How is God's awesomeness relate to us? The glory of God, the singular splendor of God, and how it relates to us. All right, look at again at verse 33. Let's get into the text for today. He begins this way. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. How glorious is our God? How glorious is he? Well, our text unpacks three ways that he is glorious. Here's the first one for you this morning. He is unfathomably glorious. He is unfathomably glorious. You could look down and never see the bottom of his glory. The glory goes on and on and on and on and on. He's unfathomably glorious. The text in verse 33 says, Oh, the the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. These are three separate attributes that the Apostle Paul decides to pull out. Riches, knowledge, and wisdom of God. He pulls them out, but what we need to understand as we dive into God's word this morning is that our text in front of us is not just sitting in isolation. It's not just popping out of nowhere. It's connected to all the verses that are around it, all the verses before and after it. Paul has a line of thought in the book of Romans that we need to be tracking with so we can understand what are these riches, what are these wisdom, what is the knowledge of God. Romans, so far in in, in this letter to the church at Rome, Paul has written to them. He hasn't been to Rome yet, but he's written to them 
them, and he's described to them the glorious riches of the gospel. He says in chapter 1, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he goes on and begins to unpack the good news of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, he describes how we are lost, we are searching in our own way for the things of our, to find meaning in our own life. In, in, in chapter 3, we talk, he talks about how, how we're all sinful, all broken, all alienated from God. He goes on and talks about how we, we are now ransomed and rescued and justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And then now because we are found in Jesus Christ, there's no condemnation for us in Jesus Christ. We are found to be his and his alone and his always, and now nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul tracks the train of the gospel. It's this long train chugging towards this ultimate conclusion, this ultimate praise and adoration by Paul to which he stops and writes, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. This is not just how he is in general. This is also how he is in particularly related to salvation, the message of God's rescue of humanity. This is what causes Paul to back up and go, oh, the depth, unfathomable. Now, here's a, here's a neat little Greek lesson I'll take you on, okay? Uh, the word oh, that first, if we're going word by word through the text, let me take you to the first word that Paul uses. It's this word here, oh, okay? You should find that in all of your, tra- oh, all right? Now, the behind that word, here's the Greek word that sits behind it, okay? And do you know how you pronounce that word? Oh! Now, there's two, two ways that you can say that, that, that sound in Greek. You can use uh, an O, which is another letter of the, of the alphabet, which is an omicron, or you can take this one. Does anyone know what the name of this letter is? Omega. Omega. Not omicron. Omega. Do you know what that word means? That means Oh my goodness, that's huge. That's what they mean. It means, that, that, and if you look at it in the dictionary, it says, back up and go, wow. Oh, th- why is Paul doing this? What, what, what's Paul been talking about? He's been talking about the gospel. He's been backing up and saying, oh, mega. The good news of the gospel is absolutely incredible, church at Rome. Omega, that God, omnipotent God, would love you and I like this. That God would send his son to die for you and me. And you know who you are, and I know who I am. Omega, right? And then he goes on, oh, that God would do this for me, even though I didn't seek him. I turned aside. I suppressed the truth. Oh, that God would cancel my debt that would nail the debt upon the cross, that I would be justified by faith, not, not from works of the law, but justified by faith, just like Abraham was. Omega, that, that through his grace, there's no condemnation for me now in Christ Jesus. Omega, that nothing would ever separate me from his love, ever, ever, ever. Oh, that he has granted me mercy, not based on my goodness, but based on his grace. Oh, that if I call upon the name of the Lord today, I would be saved. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Look, Paul says, at this incredible plan of salvation. Look at what God has done for you. He saw all the brokenness in this world with his wars, with its hatred, 
with its racism, with its death and disease and injustice. And our God looks at us and says, this is not the way it was supposed to be. This is not how I made this world. But something has come in. Sin began to reign. And the enemy began to laugh. And this sin, this parasite upon God's goodness came in and broke things. The earth is broken with its storms and its fires and its floods. Your bodies are broken with its disease and sickness and death. Your relationships are broken. Division and racism and hatred and violence. But worst of all, your hearts. Your hearts are broken because you have turned aside from the goodness of who I am, says God, and you have turned into yourselves and you've lost sight of me and now you live for you or for men or for things of the world. You've placed yourself at the center of the universe and you've lost me, your greatest good, and now you're starving because you need me and you're starving but you don't know me and you're starving so you go and try and find food and try and find the nourishment for your soul and so you turn to things like, that, you, that you desperately want. You think, oh, this will help me. You, so you begin to worship things like food or you begin to worship things like money or what you can buy. You begin to worship things like sex or achievement or power or pleasure and all of them leave you empty. 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 But, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. At the right time, while we were weak, Christ died for us. That while we were still sinners, Jesus came for us. And that's why Paul backs up and goes, oh, Mega. He's unfathomably glorious. Minds can't even figure out how deep the glory of God is. Hey, hey, do you know what the most dangerous uh, thing in the hand of a child is? Uh, if you're a parent with young kids, you know what that is right now. You're saying it's not scissors, it's not a knife, it's chocolate. Because you and I, as adults, we eat chocolate by, by taking a bite and putting it down, because it melts. But a child eats chocolate by grabbing it and holding it and clutching it, like anyone wants it from their hands after three minutes anyways, right? Like no one's going to take, and then it gets melted, and then the, the, then the danger comes, because then they, they start to move, and they go places, and then they start touching things, and touching people, and touching their little brother, and touching, you know, and then, and then things get on the wall, and then they start to say, I'm gonna climb up on the couch, and then they get on the couch, and then they touch the dog, and every, it gets everywhere. And then you gotta take the child and put them down and say, stop moving, just stop moving. You don't even let them go and try and wash themselves because it will get on the sink, it will get on the handle, it'll get on the top, you just, just stop moving. Just sit still and let me clean you. You know that God gave, he invented parenting, right? He invented parenting as an illustration for us. To demonstrate how much he loves us. To demonstrate how we can be so many times. Everything is tainted by the effects of sin. A sinful person with sin on their hands can't wash the sin off their hands. 
God's solution, the only solution, is to come to clothe himself as us, to walk a sinless life, to carry a cross, and upon the cross die, to receive the judgment of sin, to receive the stains of our hands on his body, and that we might be washed clean. That's the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. He doesn't make you pick it up. He doesn't make you try and get yourself clean. He doesn't ask you, I want you to work harder. I want you to work more. I want you to memorize more. I want you to submit to the life I'm telling you to do right now. I want you to recite more. I want you to pray more. I want you to sing more. I want you to give more. Do, 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 do. God's not saying that to you this morning. God's saying to you this morning, sit down and be still and I will clean you. You can't do anything. Come to me and find rest. This is the message of the gospel Paul's been unpacking, and he starts by saying, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Unfathomable glory. His riches are glorious. His wisdom is glorious. His knowledge is glorious because they come from the one who is himself unfathomably glorious. And here's the great truth. When you begin to see the glory of God in this light, when you begin to see his unfathomable glory like this, you begin to step back and say, wait a second, wait a second. The story is not about me. The hero is God. He is singularly wonderful. Words fail. Now, before we leave this verse and this point, let's look at the second sentence that Paul lays out for us. He goes on. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Again, judgments and ways are in reference to the context that's already gone before it, the message of salvation. How, uh, how unsearchable are his judgments, the judgments related to salvation, how inscrutable his ways, the ways related to, to, to salvation. Now, do, now, ways and judgments related, not related to salvation, are, are they absolutely unsearchable and inscrutable? Absolutely, 100%. But the context points us to salvation, unsearchable. I, I, I can't find it. I, I'm combing, th- I can't understand the nature of his judgments. Inscrutable. Inscrutable. Now, what does that word mean? I don't use that word a lot. Maybe you do. You know, as in my study this week, I did not understand what it meant and I did not know how to interpret it. So I looked it up, and no joke, this is the definition of inscrutable. Impossible to understand or interpret. (laughs) I didn't get it. Great. It, It like defines itself in the not knowing what it meant. Impossible to understand, impossible to interpret. God's ways, God's plans, God's knowledge, God's wisdom, God's judgment. You can ponder them forever, and you can never fully understand them. You can think about them hour after hour and day after day, and you will never, ever, ever come to the bottom of it, of understanding it. They're absolutely unfathomable. He is unfathomably glorious. Now, just stop there for a second, because unfathomable, when you think about it, really has two senses to it. You can say unfathomable, and, and, and it, you don't really care about it. Let me give you an example. Somebody comes up, maybe one of you will come up to me and say, hey, hey, Pastor Craig, I want to just talk to you about the atomic structure of the world. I find it so fascinating. 
there, there, there's things called protons and neutrons, and, and there's these electrons, and they circle around the protons and the neutrons, and they're, they're, they create a cloud, and these orbitals, and all this stuff, and that's the neat, and sometimes they, they jump electrons and the chains, and they bond together, and everything like that. You know what I'm going to say to this? I'm going to say, that is absolutely unfathomable, and I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I really don't. Like, I don't, I don't, man, that's good for you. Like, I don't care. But then, that's one sense of unfathomable. Wah, big whoop. But then the other sense of unfathomable is something that you love, that you can never really, truly get to the bottom. You just study it and study it and love it and dig into it, and you think about it, and you, 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 you can't ever get to the bottom of it because it's absolutely unfathomable for you. Now, now what do you think which sense do you think Paul calls us to right now? Oh, the depth of the riches. Or, oh. He's calling us to the magnitude of God. The wow. And, and, and loved ones, when the Apostle Paul backs up and goes, this is amazing, we all need to be saying, yeah, this is amazing. Which one is he calling our hearts to right now, the Lord? Have we been too much in this, oh, yeah, God's amazing, God's glorious, or, is it, or, or do we need to be more here? God is awesome, God is glorious, God is amazing. You know, at the time of Martin Luther, Martin Luther was actually, he, he, he wrote, one of the great gifts to the German language is he wrote out a copy of God's word uh, in the German language. He began to standardize the German language all over the place. It was, it was hugely helpful for the society and, and amazingly helpful to get the gospel out. And the, the place he started, like many translators even today, is he grabbed the New Testament. He says, I'm going to translate the New Testament. And what he did was very different from previous translators. He didn't translate off a Latin version or off a, tr of a previous translation. He asked for an accurate copy of the Greek New Testament. And, and, and there was a guy at the time, he lived in the Netherlands, and he was putting together a critical copy of the New Testament, critical in the good sense, like I'm studying and putting these pieces together. And he, and he compiled all these manuscripts and then he wrote out a, a, a book, published a book on the Greek New Testament. The guy's name was Erasmus, Desiderius Erasmus. He, he was a, a, a philosopher and, and a pen pal of Martin Luther, but, but Erasmus was never a reformer. Stayed in the Catholic Church all of his life. And in one of the correspondences that, that Martin Luther wrote him, he said, you know, I appreciate all that you're doing, love that you study God's word, but you're studying God's word and you're with a kind of, uh, you're not, you're not studying God's word with a wow to find the God of the word. He said this to him, he says, Erasmus, your thoughts of God are way too human. Your thoughts of God are way too human. You think he's like you. You have a small, containable, easy to understand, put him in a box kind of God. He behaves in predictable patterns in the way I want. He's like a pet. Your thoughts of God are way too human. Hey, who, who did you come here to worship today? Did you come to worship a God who is unfathomably glorious? Or did you come to worship a smaller God than that? Did you come to worship a lesser God? Or a God you can completely understand? A God who is completely like you? 
But God's word speaks to us today, this morning, and I pray reaches into our hearts as well and says the truth, the real truth, which is the truth our hearts need, that our God is incomprehensibly, unfathomably glorious. Catherine and I, uh, we flew to Chicago a couple weeks back, and it's fun. We, we lived there for eight years of our life, so we love that city. And uh, we, we, the, the, at one point, the plane banked, and you could see the windows, you know, wow, out the windows. And there's the skyline, and Chicago's very proud of how many skyscrapers it has. And the view of the, the city from the plane is really cool. You see them out there, and, you know, you see the John Hancock building you know, with the X's on it. And you, see the, you can see Navy Pier with the big, you know, Ferris wheel. And then there's the building that used to be called the Sears Tower, and it's called something else now. And uh, all these great buildings, and you see them from the height. And the effect upon you is, wow, look at these things. These things are huge. And then, and then later on, in the, the time that we were there, we were walking actually down on the street level and walking by some of these buildings. And then you know what you do. You, you, you walk, when you walk to one of the build, big buildings, you just stop, and then you look up. And then you're like, whoa, because it's so huge. The comparison between you and the building is enormous. In many ways, that's what Paul is going to do with us right now. He has taken us on the high fly view and seen the perspective of the unfathomable glory of God. And now he's going to put us on street level and he's going to put us right next to the glory of God. And he's going to cause us to look up and compare ourselves to this amazing God. Again, with the heart being of worship, do you see him? Behold him. Look down with me at verse 34. Let's continue on in our text. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given to him a gift that he might be repaid? How glorious is he? Not only is he unfathomably glorious, he's also this, point number two, he is perfectly glorious, perfectly glorious. And by perfect, I mean you don't add anything to perfect. Perfect is perfect. How does this look? It looks perfect. We don't add anything to it. How am I? You're perfect. We don't add anything to it. God says this, I'm perfect. I don't add anything to me. No one and nothing can ever add anything to him. Who has known the mind of the Lord, he says, and who has been his counselor? Has there ever, ever, ever been anyone ever who has ever fully understood the mind of God? Has there ever been anyone ever who has come alongside and said, hey, God, God, you're doing a great job here, but here's a little tip. Here's something you don't know. You need to be aware of this thing that maybe you're not aware of. No, no, God never, never, never needs this. He knows everything. He doesn't need tips or tricks. He knows everything. Or who has given to him a gift that he might be repaid? Has there ever been anyone ever who has ever placed God in their debt, done something for God to which God says, you know what, I totally owe you for that. Thank you so much. I could not have accomplished that without you. I needed you to do this. God says, thanks, I owe you. God never says this. He's never going to say this. Oh, thanks, I owe you one. That was, that was huge. I, couldn't have, I don't know how I would have worked that out alone. I'm the God who can make stones cry out, but you know, I definitely needed you and your skills. I've been feeling that this week. Hey, Craig, you're going to preach on the glory of God. Oh, okay. How's that going to work? God doesn't need me to do this. God could bring a stone up here. Wouldn't that be great? Bring a stone up here, crack a mouth in it, and preach a way better sermon than this guy. God doesn't need me. doesn't need anything. doesn't need us. And likewise, God doesn't owe you for anything ever. You don't do favors for God. He needs nothing, and he needs no one. 
So just pause for a second there and think. Allow yourselves to soak in the mind of the gospel for a second. God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need anyone. But God came for you. So wait a second, wait. God didn't need me. He didn't need me to add to his glory or his perfections or, or to, be, to have more company uh, or, or to have you know, a, a friendlier day. God didn't need me, but he came for me. The Lord Jesus Christ stepped into time and space, bore sin upon himself upon the cross, suffered and died so that I might have life and freedom and forgiveness and the fellowship of the Lord all the days of my life and into eternity. So if he didn't need me, why did he come for me? You place your mind in this category and soak in the gospel for a second, the only conclusion you can come to is because he wanted me. Because he, he wants me. I don't add anything to him. I don't add to his glory. I don't add to his perfection. But he wants me. He wants to bring me to him and to his glory and to his perfection. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor or who has given to him a gift that he might be repaid? We struggle with this, though. He doesn't owe anybody anything ever. You don't do favors for God. He doesn't need anything or anybody. He can do it all. You don't do things for an omnipotent God. But we struggle with this sometimes. You know how we struggle with this? We struggle with it in three ways. Here's the first thing, the first way. We struggle it when we think we've caught him in doing something wrong, like a fault. Oops, you made a mistake there. Uh, oh, God, you may not know this, but I have the kids I have, and I shouldn't have the kids I have because they're kind of crazy right now. Oh, God, you don't know this right now, but uh, uh, the job I've got right now is a little bit beneath me. Or, or I don't have the salary I need right now. I've got this current trial right now. I've got this sickness that's going on in my life right now. God, let me fill you in. You don't quite understand how hard this is for me. Let me fill you in and share with you how hard it is so that you will make the situation different for me. You begin to not to pray to God, but you begin to complain to God and tell him. You fill him in. Let me counsel you on something. Here's another way we do it when we think we're treating, he's treating us unjustly. This is related to the first. You, you say, no, okay, I shouldn't have that title. I'm better than this. I, sh I should have those luxuries. I'm better than this. I should have that situation. I'm better than this. God, you're wronging me. You're actually standing in my way of accomplishing something. Don't you know what you're doing to me? And then the third way, sometimes when we just think we've, we've served him. We've we've, God, I did this. I worked so hard for you. I did so much for you. Don't you see? Why can't you do this for me? Remember when I went out and did that thing for my neighbor? Remember when I was that faithful in that particular ministry you called me to? I did that thing. And so why aren't you doing this for me? Who has given to him a gift that he might be repaid? You know, these are, these are really, if you notice this, these are three rhetorical questions in, the, in these two verses, 34 and 35, and they can be answered by the word nobody. You want to try this? Let's try this, okay? I'll point to you, and you say the word nobody. Ready? I'll read them again. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Nobody. Who has been his counselor? Nobody. Or who has given to him a gift that he might be repaid? Nobody. You get it. You get it. The medieval church didn't get it, though. It taught that the actions of man would 
drive and action by God. If you did stuff for God, God would be favorable to you. If you went and saw a relic, if you touched a piece of the original cross, if you held Peter's bones in your hand or saw the skull of John the Baptist, if you said some Hail Marys, if you talked to a priest, if you prayed in a direction, if you partook in communion, all of those things. If you did those things, then God would say, thank you so much. And here is some of response for you. I owe you one. Here's some time off purgatory. Here's some favor for you. Lutheran reformers, though, they pick up God's word, sola scriptura, and they begin to read, and they begin to read a verse like we read last week in last week's message, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Who has given to him a gift that he might be repaid? Nobody. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the gratia, so the scriptura. Do you see, how, see why when you begin to mess with these things, the glory of God begins to be diminished? When I begin to say that I can earn things, that God would pay me back, earn my salvation, be a better person, do harder work, then God will pay me back, then the glory of God begins to be diminished. You can't add anything to God. You can't earn salvation by trying harder. What's at stake here for the reformers is the glory of man versus the glory of God. I accomplished something, and now God rewards me for something. Here's the truth. To glorify God, I must stop glorifying myself. John Calvin, he was uh, another one of these reformers, a little bit, few years after Luther. Uh, he settled in, in Geneva, Switzerland, and he wrote this, and I think this is helpful. Thus the matter stands... We never truly glory in him unless we've utterly put off our own glory. On the other hand, we must hold this as a universal principle. Check this. Whoever glories in himself glories against God. Whoever glories in himself glories against God. Who did you come here to worship today? Did you come here to worship a God who needs humanity to do some things? I do some things for God. God does some things for me. I, I, I serve God in this particular way, and God meagerly gives me a little bit of love in this direction, a little bit of grace in this direction. Or did you come here to worship today a God who is perfect, who does not need you to do anything, who does not need you to add to his perfection, but wants instead to share his perfection with you, who wants instead to shower love upon you. Do you want to be loved by a God who, who only loves you in return when you do things? Or do you want to be loved by a God freely who loves you unlimitlessly and just says, come, come, I love you. Who did you come to worship today? So in many ways, that's us against the building looking up. This is me, and that's God. Perfectly glorious. We've flown over the city line and seen how unfathomably glorious he is. We've stood next to the buildings and seen how perfectly glorious he is. But imagine if you're standing in Chicago next to the building and someone came up to me and said, hey, tap, 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 tap. Hey, uh, Craig Turnbull? Yes. Uh, this is a key. This is the key for one of the floors in the building, and you get to live there now. What? 
And anyways, that's what Paul's going to do. He's shown us how amazingly glorious God is. He shows us how perfectly glorious God is. And now he's going to say how generously glorious God is. He's going to share with us his great and awesome glory. That's our third point. He is generously glorious. Generously glorious. Our glorious God wants to share him. Wants to share himself. Verse 36 says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Keep your head down in the text for a second. Just By the way, do you notice this? That, that our first verse, verse 33, has two exclamation marks. Big, big points. Oh! Then, then our second two, two verses, 34 and 35, have these two question marks. These, these rhetorical questions, nobody can do this, nobody can do this. And now we come to verse 36 with two periods, or three if we count the amen. And, and these, what follow, are, are two specific statements, two specific statements of incredible meaning. I think they're arguably the most important statements in the book of Romans, so you can underline them. And I think, arguably, they're also two of the most important ideas or most important concepts or most important sentences in the entire Bible as it is. Look at them again. For from him and through him and to him are all things, all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Everything comes from him. Everything lives by him. Everything ends in him. Again, the context for our passage is specifically in salvation. God has generated and orchestrated salvation so that from him the glory comes, and then through him the glory is received, and then back to him the glory is returned. One of the ways of thinking about this is by considering this diagram. Okay? This, is, this, is, this is in the context of Romans 11. This is the idea of the glory that's going on here. God is the source of all glory. He, sends the, he, he releases the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who Jesus Christ is now the agent of glory because of his work upon the cross, his sacrifice on our behalf, the sacrifice as a substitution and the payment for sins. He's now the agent of glory, unlocking the door to glory so that now we come in. We come in as believers in Jesus Christ. This is me right here. Do you see that? That's me. Me. I'm in there. You're in there too if you follow in Jesus Christ. Now receiving the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the goal of everything is to return the glory back to God. God gets all of the glory for this. Not one of us is standing here saying, look at me, I'm amazing. The plan of salvation is look at God. Look at God, our generous, glorious God who is sharing himself with us. He is the source of all glory. He's the agent of all glory. He's the object of all glory. And this, loved ones, is the brilliant truth, the brilliant finale of the gospel. Not only that God loves us, which is astounding. Not only that Christ died for us. Not only that the second person of the Trinity gave his life for you and I. Now, those things are amazing. Not only that you and I can be freed from sin and death, that's amazing, but here's the greatest truth, that awesomely, wondrously so, we are welcomed into the presence of the glory of God, sharing in his glory, being transformed by his glory. To him be glory forever. Amen. And when this understanding reaches you, these big questions, you can see why this is so important the Reformation. When these questions were answered, they wouldn't put them back. They were willing to throw into the fire anything that said anything else. The questions, who is God? And what's he really like? Who am I? And what am I here for? Are answered in this. My purpose becomes very, very clear. 
Fast forward in the Reformation, this, these little, uh, little, little bombs detonate in these cities of the gospel, and the missionaries go forth from there. And one of the places that they go to is, is Great Britain, and they land in places, and out of Great Britain uh, comes these amazing followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, this amazing tradition of gospel-centeredness, holding these five truths so critically in their hands. And about 100 years later, this, these great church movements, they produce a, a, a body of writing that is meant to teach and train children. It's so, it's so simple, these truths. And the very first question coming out of one of these, uh, this is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Some of you were raised on this tradition. It, it asks this question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. That's what they wrote 100 years ago, but these, these truths should change us today as well. How do they change us? How does, it, how does my life begin to change to live for the glory of God when I understand these truths and God begins to open up my mind to see them more clearly? Well, I, I came up with four ways that, that this should change us. Uh, it begins, we begin to think differently. Like we've already talked about, there begins to be a joyful worship in my heart as I respond to the truth of the glory of God. My mind, my heart are transformed in this way, and joy, joyfulness worship comes out of my life. I begin to enjoy God in this way. I begin to sing differently. No longer just words coming out of my mouth as I stand up, but, but, but I'm praising God and singing to God. I begin to believe differently. Now I begin to walk by faith. You know one of the strongest ways you can glorify God is by believing who, him who he says he is and then stepping out in faith to do something that God is calling you to do. Not relying on my safety nets. I'm going to do it. To walk by faith and not by sight and then act differently. I begin to joyfully worship in service. That could be service at church. That could be service wherever you are. Now all of a sudden, God's, God and his glory is not found just in a church service. You can't, it's not just glorifying God by working in the church or serving in the church, as, as wonderful as that is. It's also, it's also you can glorify God in anything you do. With joy in your heart, you can, my heart in the right place, I can glorify God doing anything. In fact, there's a great quote, I don't have it, but Martin Luther talking about if you need to change diapers or change babies, you can do it for the glory of God. I'm thankful for that. What's that look like in your work? What's that look like in your home? Begin to act differently. Who did you come here to worship today? Did you come here to, make, to worship a God who wants to make life all about you? Or is greatly consumed by his own glory? and wants to draw you into his greater glory. People were hungry for God in the 16th century. They tried councils, they tried monasteries, they tried popes, indulgences, endless prayers, acts of devotion. But then they opened up the scriptures, Sola Scriptura. And then they saw the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is and what he had done. Sola Cristo. And then his gift of grace, Sola Gratia, through faith, Sola Fide received. And then all of a sudden, hungry hearts became satisfied hearts, satisfied to live for the glory of God alone. 16th century, 21st century, people are people. I believe that there are hungry people here today. Maybe you haven't tried councils or monasteries or popes or indulgences. Maybe that hasn't been your story, but maybe you've tried other things. You've tried other things to fill that. You've tried things like stuff, money, people, relationships, careers. You try to live vicariously through your kids 
vacations, living for pleasure, entertainment. But nothing seems to satisfy. Here's the thing I think that God's Word wants to lead us to again today. If you're glorying in yourself, you're glorying against God. You never really truly glorify Him unless you put aside your own glory to follow Him. So, last question again. Who'd you come here to worship today? Did you come to worship the God who's easy to understand and predictable in His ways and just exactly like you and how you think? Frail? Or did you come to worship the one who's unfathomably glorious? Did you come here to worship today the God who needs your help and says, oh, thank you, I couldn't have done it without you? Or the God who doesn't need anything but draws you to himself? The one who's perfectly glorious? Did you come here to worship today the God who wants you to live for yourself? Or the God who calls you to the great glory of who he is? Generously calling you in that way. 